When you hear the words machine learning, what comes to mind? Um, I think a lot of opportunity to advance. Machine learning is like the closest thing we can get to like artificial intelligence, right? You tell the computer, you basically just modeling. It's modeling problems, and over time, the computer, you know, figures out the algorithm through different, you know, factors like variables that you put in, and that's just I guess machine learning over time. Oh. I can guess. Sure. <laughs> What's your best guess? Uh, when machines learn, you know, you teach them something. It's not like self. It's not like self cognition, but when machines learn on their own, essentially. I'm Kiersey Goldinia, and this is Sex, Drugs, and Healthcare, a show where we delve into the ins and outs of the technology, ideas, and people that keep healthcare moving forward. And on this episode, we're talking about, you guessed it, machine learning. As I discovered. People tend to have at least a ballpark idea of what machine learning is, but when it comes to exactly how it can be used in healthcare, it tends to be kind of a mystery. Maybe they can learn ways to combine to to cre- create new forms of medicine to cure people faster. I have no idea. Uh, I'm a healthcare professional, oh, okay. so and I don't think it's going to impact a lot. So here to disambiguate the concept for us is Eric Huang, an MD, PhD, and assistant dean of bioinformatics at Duke University School of Medicine. Who's part of a larger effort at Duke to utilize machine learning to improve healthcare? But to begin talking about machine learning, we have to first acknowledge one important fact: that doctors are humans, and being human comes with limitations. We only have one pair of hands, one set of eyes and ears, so the number of things that we can attend to at once is limited. And when you're responsible for looking after multiple patients in a hospital, this means that you have to make decisions about how to prioritize the care that you give to each of them, and this is where machine learning can help. And it all comes down to data. Uh, we've seen the promise uh, of using data more effectively. That promise Wang's referring to dates back to a legendary doctor at Duke named Eugene Stett. He actually created the concept of a physician's assistant. Like I said, pretty legendary. Anyway, in the 1960s, Eugene Stead was working with an engineer named Frank Starmer. They were studying heart attacks. And to study them, Starmer built machines that could record with a meticulous amount of detail the stroke volume of a patient. Stroke volume is a measure of cardiac output. But despite the ingenuity of Starmer's machine, Stead challenged him with a question that he hadn't considered. Are nurses and clinicians really using all this information from a technical standpoint? It's a tour de force, but is it actually useful in the care of these patients? This drove Starmer to realize that although he had built these amazing machines, he didn't really understand how doctors worked or what they needed. There was a disconnect between the engineers building the medical technology and the doctors who used it, which resulted in healthcare innovations that weren't suited to doctors' needs. So then. Stead said to Starmer, "Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you take physical diagnosis, you know, like what the med students, you know, take when they're learning to examine patients, and you're going to round on patients weekly with me as chair of medicine on our our medicine service." So Frank Starmer, with no medical training, rounded with Eugene Stead, the renowned cardiologist, for years to the point where Starmer was actually pretty good at diagnosing patients. Now, if you're thinking, hold on, it's not very practical to have engineers rounding with doctors for years just to have a better sense of what doctors' needs are. That's what I thought too. So, what's the moral of the story? Can we somehow recapitulate that process of learning from one another, uh, identifying, you know, really poignant use cases 
and then aligning the methodological skills of a, a quant. That's quantitative analyst, like a statistician. With the clinical uh, use cases that a clinician, you know, who's practicing in the trenches can bring to bear. So by getting the quants and the doctors to collaborate from the start, both parties can have a shared understanding of what kind of technology is useful for patient care, the type of data that should go into building that technology, and the type of data that the technology should ultimately provide us with. And the importance of having a clear understanding of these things is not only recognized by the physicians, but by the quants too. It's really easy to write something that no one will use. Understanding what needs to be built is probably one of the biggest challenges in, in software. This is Justin Martin, the CTO of FundRx. I've been writing software professionally for about 10 years now. So Justin, we've already established the importance of understanding how and why new technology will be used. So now I want to talk specifically about a machine learning system that can be trained on the data of patients in the past. And then it can tell us if a patient presents with X, Y, and Z symptoms, what is the likelihood that they will need X amount of care tonight? What is the likelihood that they are more that they are in more dire need of care than the patient next door in the next room? So from a programming perspective, what does building a system like that entail? What does that look like? Well, we've been we've been moving in a, a direction where we, we're trying to to mimic the structure of a brain. You know, we've been using our physiology and our, our knowledge of medicine and of neurology to try and make a an algorithm or set of algorithms which can learn just like people do through what's called neural networks. So when you say a neural network, how does the concept of a neural network translate in the system that you're building? So when we when we say neural network in terms of the brain, it's an actual physical synapse between two neurons. So when we talk about this in terms of a computer system, what does that what represents that neuron and what represents that synapse and how does this fit together? So the uh, each synapse would be a weighted variable. Um, and maybe that's overloaded. A variable that you could tweak. Uh, maybe you would reduce it to a number that's you know, zero to one uh, in the simplest case. Uh, and the neuron would be a, a simple function that will manipulate the inputs in some way. And you combine enough of these together and you can tweak just about any number into just about any other number. Now, the output is not going to necessarily match the goal, right, the, the truth. Uh, and the difference is what's called the cost function. And the goal with any neural network is to reduce the cost function down to as close to zero as possible. Which uh, would be as close to the truth or the real outcome that you're, you're expecting. Exactly. Exactly. Now, the more variables you add, uh, the more weights, the more neurons, and the more synapses, uh, the harder it gets to reduce that cost function. What is the limit to the potential that you see? Or where do you think that human component is still going to be necessary? I think that humans are uniquely set to come up with unexpected answers. Uh, a, a neural network can get very good at doing what you train it to do. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, we're not very good at making them good at doing unexpected things or finding new solutions. Um, that's, that's not always true, strictly speaking. Um, but from a general standpoint, humans are still better at doing that. Um, but where it gets interesting is, you know, we're now at a point where we're making these neural networks that can make neural networks better than we can make them. Huh. Uh, and so it's a self-generating neural network. Exactly. 
still within limited constraints, but you can see how this changes the game. Sure. You have a few very good neural networks that just are really good at making neural networks, and they can make them of all different different types for different specialties, for different functions. Cool. To, to answer your, the question, you know, where's the limit? Um, I think that we, we keep finding that it's further away than we initially thought. Really? Uh, it, it keeps on moving. Uh, there, there were a lot of unknown unknowns, and as we learn more about the potential of neural networks, we keep on finding, wow, these, these things can be really powerful. So do you think the day could come where so much data could be learned from that a system could read a patient's health data and say, I know exactly what's going to happen to you in five minutes. You're going to experience a heart attack. Is that possible? Could it could it tell us certainly this is what's going to happen to this patient? Certainly is is tough, but with a very high probability, yeah. Uh, and maybe more accurately than humans. Almost uh, almost certainly there, there will come a point where a set of machine learning algorithms is more effective than humans at diagnosing patients. Uh, I think we're at another area where it gets really interesting is where it becomes predictive. You know, right. For example, a, uh, you start plugging in all this health data where you start to see like an uptick of people saying, hey, I've been coughing this morning, maybe I'm getting a flu. Uh, you start plugging that into a, a powerful algorithm, it can start detecting uh, epidemics before they've even begun spreading. Wow. Whereas current systems, oh my gosh, it takes weeks right. before they even register. A computer can do it in a matter of seconds just by the number of people talking about being sick this morning, which used to be sort of insurmountable. Wow. It's very cool. But at the end of the day, it's just an equation. It's just an equation. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, A simple it is. equation could save someone's life. Well, maybe not Maybe simple. not simple, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, exactly. So in its most basic form, a neural network can be built from data that's put into an algorithm. The more data you put in, the larger the network becomes, and the more precisely the system can predict an outcome. The patient data that you train the network on creates a baseline that it can use to make these predictions. But while this might seem like an indisputably good thing for human health, the gathering of large sums of human information, or big data as it's been termed, has gotten a pretty bad rep. And as it's such an integral part of machine learning, I wanted to get to the bottom of exactly what the term big data means when it comes to healthcare. I think, you know, the, the entities that truly deal with big data in terms of it being truly, truly big are, you know, obviously companies like Facebook and Google. Again, here's Eric Huang. Um, you know, a health system, even though it has lots of data, has, you know, it may have, you know, millions of patient encounters and hundreds of thousands of patients, et cetera. That sounds pretty big, but compared to the kinds of the volumes of data that a Google deals with, it's actually relatively small. So what I would say is, you know, at least in our domain where we, when we use the term big data somewhat imprecisely, is that it's the diversity of the kinds of data. Let's say I were a patient, what kind of information would be gathered about my health? Really, it's just what's in the, you know, what's ultimately captured in the electronic health record. So if you're in clinic and, you know, your primary care physician writes notes about you, that's an electronic health record. If they draw labs, that's an electronic health record. That all sounds pretty standard, right? But then... One of my colleagues at Stanford has, likes pointing out that um, FICO, you know, the credit rating company, 
FICO actually has taken the same information that they use for your credit you know, rating to actually predict whether you will take your medications as prescribed. Oh, wow. Um, so when you start thinking about, quote, quote, big data, do you think about it as like, that's actually information a doctor could use. Now, right now, doctors don't get that data, right? They don't get your credit score. Wow. Um, but, I, you know, I only say it somewhat flippantly, but that's actually, that would be, if you actually had a, a, a good measure of a patient's propensity to take their medication, you would actually, that would affect your clinical decision-making. This, I thought, was a pretty interesting idea. By collecting data that isn't necessarily medically relevant, like your credit score, someone could predict how likely you are to take your medicine. And armed with this kind of data, doctors could have a more realistic understanding of the kinds of medical regimens that are best suited for each patient. But I had a feeling that people might be pretty opinionated about the idea of providing doctors with this kind of information. So I decided to ask New Yorkers how they feel about it. Right now, I'm in New York City's Madison Square Park to try to find out how much information people would be willing to share with their doctors. Hey, could I ask you guys a couple quick questions? What would you say if your doctor asked you for your credit score and said that with that kind of sensitive information, they could treat you better as a patient? I would not believe them. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. wouldn't do it. And I wouldn't. can't even get him to take his wellness exam. <laughs> she, yeah, she won't even get, I don't know, I guess, yeah, my, I guess my doctor would be different than my health insurance company. But yeah, my doctor, I would say, why do you need it? Well, that would be fucked. I mean, I'd hope I have a good credit score. Yeah, right. <laughs> I would definitely go ahead. We're living in the 21st century. Go ahead with new technology. Great. What would you say? I don't think that scores can say how to treat a person. So you would say no if your doctor asked for your credit score? Yes, I would say no. <laughs> oh, now you're getting trippy. Okay, so clearly some people have a pretty strong reaction to this question. I think that'd be bullshit. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't like that at all. So you think they might judge you or deny you care or not treat you as well? Yeah, that would just be not cool. That, that, that would be so fucked up if like that's how it went down. I really hope that doesn't happen. Is that like about to happen? No way. <laughs> no, no, no. But then I wondered if explaining the rationale of how gathering this kind of data could be useful might change the minds of the people who were opposed. What if they said that it would help them come up with healthcare regimens for you? Oh, based on like... Knowing how responsible you are and your routine and stuff like that. I'm not sure you could conflate the two, though. Hmm. You might be totally irresponsible and have a great credit score. Yeah. Interesting. That's a really good point. <laughs> I mean, one way that it could help, like you said, it's it, you sh it shows that you're more responsible. A lot. I think I think a big problem is people not taking their medicine or like people being irresponsible. I mean, I know that for me, I had to be on a regimen. I sucked at it. And mm -hmm. Maybe there was easier ways of me staying on top of it, or if, I don't know. So you, it wouldn't worry you if it was actually to benefit your health. No, not really. So some people came around to the idea, but not everyone. And on one level, I get it. Humans are a judgmental species. And when it comes to something as important as your health, no one wants to be disadvantaged by a doctor's negative perception. But at the same time, if it could improve health, might it be worth giving our doctors all the information they need to have a complete understanding of who we are? Uh, you can imagine um, a clinician, if they're faced with you know, taking care of a patient with some chronic disease, 
they're faced with um, writing them a drug that they have to take four times a day versus another drug that they only have to take once a day. And let's say even maybe that drug that you take once a day is maybe shown by clinical trials to be a little bit inferior to the other drug. Well, you know, if you're going to use all the information at your disposal, you might go ahead and prescribe them a drug that would be easier to take for them, um, even if it might be somewhat inferior because, you know, you're, you're balancing all the risks of them not taking the drug at all. So let me turn the tables around for a second and ask you, is there any information that you right now would feel uncomfortable giving your doctor? <laughs> well, you know, honestly, um, you know, being a relatively healthy person right now, there's not much in my electronic health record that I'm uncomfortable about. Certainly, um, if my Apple Watch information would be useful to my doctor, yeah, certainly. So what do you think stands in the way of, you know, whether it's from a policy standpoint or a perceptual standpoint, getting to a point where we can gather that type of sensitive information that will really benefit people's health? Right. So first, I think you have to prove that um, whatever uh, interesting data integration that you've done combined with machine learning or whatever actually has scientific and clinical value, right? So you actually have to show that you move the needle. Then two, I think the, the issue is this, is that the patient themselves really need to be empowered to make a decision about how you use their data. And they actually need to have transparency into how their data are being used. Uh, I, I hypothesize that if you prove something has value in terms of improving health outcomes to a patient, that in many cases, they're willing to cede a little bit of their privacy in order to get that better outcome. And I think, you know, you, you see just in the way uh, the public is willing to share private information with Google because Google brings back to them, you know, good services, right? Google can provide you services that will uh, tell you whether your flight's on time just by reading your Gmail account. Um, and for some people, that's very creepy. But for other people, they that's a value. There's a value to that. Um, service. So I think uh, healthcare providers uh, have to think hard about, okay, if, if I got to, there, there's got to be a quid pro quo here. I've got to give you something of value in exchange for what level of privacy you need to cede in order to get back that, that value. So whether the data you're collecting is controversial or not, it's clearly important for building the neural networks that underlie machine learning technology. But there are still more issues to consider when we think about our healthcare practices today and the effect that this kind of technology can have. So when you train these models, do you use data from Duke or do you use national data or worldwide data to get a baseline of human health? Um, so uh, in some cases, we use local data. Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, you can use national data. So um, certainly, that's, that's an interesting question, because if you build um, a prediction based on national data, it's going to be representative of sort of a broad swath of, of healthcare delivered across the United States. But when you're, you know, going to use that model, let's say at the Cleveland Clinic, or, you know, at Rush University or Duke University, uh, your local communities are going to look a little bit different than that national, that sort of smeared out national data. Mm -hmm. So one of the things 
we have to think about it in applying machine learning is how do you reconcile the national data with the local data? What we've done is we've built on a national model, but we also have built in a component where it will fine tune to the local uh, data as it accumulates the local data. So the model will actually move more towards what your local um, circumstances are um, over time. Huh. So you're saying that when you look at something like rehospitalization, for example, that's going to differ depending on what hospital you're at, you know, where in the country you're at. So to learn from a large enough sample, you can use national data, but then have your system learn from local data so that it incorporates, you know, community bias and, and what your community's needs are. Absolutely. When you think about it, let's let's say the chance that a patient will be uh, rehospitalized. You can imagine, I mean, just intuitively, you can imagine many factors that are local are embedded in, in that kind of prediction. The socioeconomic you know, surroundings of your health system, you know, the, the general patient profile that your, your health system has. And you can imagine all those are embedded as latent variables. Uh, and if you can learn those latent factors and allow that to be integrated back into the model, then yes, um, you can see improvement in your, in your local predictions, even though the model was initially trained on the national cohort. So we actually have observed that. We actually did some local fine-tuning and rehospitalization. You could actually see that it climbs up an additional learning curve uh, as it learns the local data and then delivers a, uh, ultimately a better prediction. So when, when the machine learning incorporates the local bias, does that disadvantage the demographics that are a minority uh, or you know the people who may be an outlier to that local population? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And that, yeah, if, you're, let's, if, you, if your model does tune well to your local population, and let's say just hypothetically you have a patient that came from a completely different state completely different socioeconomic uh, factors, you know, in that individual. And let's say that person was, uh, you know, in a, in a, had a heart attack locally. Um, yes, arguably that person will become a little bit of an outlier. That's where the individual physician who's looking at these predictions actually has to actually layer in an additional component of information is that this person is an outlier. So it's on the doctor to be vigilant enough to say, this person doesn't fit our general demographic, so we need to not necessarily apply those same rules to him or her. But of course, if your model was trained on the national data, hopefully there's still a, enough of that information still in the prediction that it can make a reasonably performed prediction. But I think uh, talking about bias in machine learning is actually an important thing to talk about um, because... Uh, it, it really machine learning is based on what you trained it with. So if you trained your machine learning on a Silicon Valley uh, cohort, uh, which has Silicon Valley characteristics, it's going to inherit the, those biases in its predictions. And then you try to apply that without thinking about it to a completely geographically separate part of the country with completely different ethnic and socioeconomic uh your characteristics, it's going to perform less well. Mm -hmm. And that, and I think people tend to think if it's a machine, then it must be objective. But those machines learn our biases. The last thing I want to talk about is the economics of all of this. Right now we have a system where the sicker a patient is and the more procedures they get, 
often the doctor will profit that much more. So what's the financial incentive for a doctor to implement machine learning technology when it would probably reduce their profits by streamlining the diagnostic and treatment process? Right. So um, the concept of precision medicine, for example. So, you know, President Obama talked about precision medicine in the State of the Union address in 2015 is in essence to deliver the right therapy to the right patient at the right time, Mm -hmm. which means that you're also not delivering unnecessary procedures or profiting from unnecessary procedures, et cetera. Um, And so hand in hand with that concept uh, needs to be a concept of, you know, what many people call value-based reimbursement, for instance. If you order an unnecessary procedure for a patient and it doesn't impact their outcomes, and you're doing it, frankly, to, you know, to, to line your pockets, you're not going to get paid for that um, under a value-based reimbursement scheme. So you know, for us to order the right stuff for the right patient at the right time, uh, it's important to align those financial incentives as well. But would it also incentivize physicians to practice in mostly affluent areas where patients can afford to follow a prescribed regimen or where crime is lower or where health tends to be better overall so that the negative outcomes are just naturally minimized? Right. So that's a good question. I think uh, there's a lot of effort spent on thinking about how do you risk adjust uh, these incentives, right? Because these incentives are based on metrics. So if you can if you can risk adjust for a university health system operating in an urban environment, for instance, because they're going to be seeing uh, patients with more chronic disease, et cetera. If you can adjust that risk, you know, so that their their playing field is leveled with, you know, the community hospital in a affluent area, that's that's completely feasible to do. But we actually have to get pretty sophisticated in terms of in terms of figuring out what the math is for doing that kind of risk adjustment. And that there's certainly plenty of work going on right there. But I think people are very cognizant of that fact because Absolutely. Then there would be no incentive for hospitals to operate in, you know, uh, poor urban areas, for example, as opposed to, you know, being next to a country club. So machine learning cannot exist in a healthcare vacuum. Even with revolutionary technology, our economic structure must incentivize the precision medicine that machine learning allows for. And although it can be used as a useful tool to take some of the guesswork out of a doctor's job, it still relies on the physician's ability to apply it when appropriate and know when it's not, making the doctor-patient relationship still vitally important to the health of our societies. Machine learning will undoubtedly continue to revolutionize healthcare into the future. But exactly where it will take us? I think that it's going to be like a ring that you wear, a little device that everyone has, and it just augments everyone's life to the point where they don't even know that life was ever any other way. We can only predict. Sex, Drugs, and Healthcare is a FundRx podcast hosted and produced by me. Special thanks to Eric Wong and Justin Martin for their insight on today's episode. You can stay up to date on our newest episodes by subscribing on iTunes or following us on Twitter at HC. We'll be back next month for a new adventure through the world of technology and healthcare. <laughs>